Welcome to Grace Community Church On Demand, the weekly podcast from the Sunday services at Grace Community Church in Rupert, Idaho. Here at Grace, we believe in building the kingdom of God one person at a time. We're passionate about loving God, loving people, and following Jesus. Let's get into this week's message with Pastor Travis Turner. Good morning, Grace Church. How are we doing today? You guys are only slightly more awake than the first service. We're obviously not consuming enough coffee. The sacred bean is important. So how many people went to the fair last week? It's fair time. When you talk about a fair weather friend, it means something different this time of year. You'll get that in a couple hours. So uh, some of you know I grew up in a small town about the size of Rupert in Oklahoma, and we had one county fair that we got to go to every year. We're pretty spoiled around here. We've got two county fairs we can go to. Minico, Minidoka is kind of the warm-up fair, and then we get to go to Kaja, which is bigger, more food booths, which is the best part of going to the fair, yes. and the carnival rides, although, you know, being, you know, kind of a large amusement park family, you know, Cedar Point and and um, Six Flags and things like that. Some of those carnival rides are a little bit on the sketchy side. I don't think they're built by the same people. (laughs) Uh, Operation Christmas Child was at the fair. We packed something like a thousand boxes. So come on out at the Casia Fair. They'll be there again. Pop in, say hi, pack a shoebox, volunteer to spend some time at the booth, go grab some friends to come and pack shoeboxes, and we'll get a bunch of shoeboxes packed. That's a big, th- a big time at the fair. Um, so we've been in this series uh, called Walking the Path, where we've been talking about what does the Christian life look like? What does it look like to live the Christian life? To be a Christian, what's the nuts and bolts of this thing? And, um, and we're, we're talking about walking a path. And if you're going to walk a path, then you need a map. So Bruce Olson was uh, an American missionary to the Bari people on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. This is some of Javi's homies down there. <laughs> His cousins. So he was, he was this, this Scandinavian-American kid from Minnesota, I think, that um, just was at, you know, he was gifted in languages as an early, as, as, as a kid, and was at a mission conference at his church, and God got a hold of him, and so he just, he just went. He showed up, and they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, you were at my mission conference, you told me to come. He's like, you're supposed to get an agency and go. He's like, you just told me to come, so I came. And they're like, well, we got nothing for you. So he literally just wandered into the jungle and, and, and encountered this tribe of people. Little did he know that this tribe of people was famous for having killed every white man they ever encountered. And they were embroiled in this dispute because uh, folks were coming in trying to develop oil resources on their, on their, on their, on their land. Um, in the parts of the jungle where they lived. And so, you know, one thing led to another, and he had this amazing ministry, this amazing story um, that, that he wrote in a book called Bruchko, which is what they called him. 
um, which some people say is like the gold standard of missionary biographies. It's the only missionary biography I've ever read twice. Um, and I would encourage you to read it. As a result of his work, it's estimated that 60% of the Bari people have become Christians. Um, and it was just amazing the way he would, he would be with them and they would be sharing some of their cultural history, their cultural mythology, and he would see all these things that pointed directly to Christ. And he would talk to them about it. He even encountered a, cult- a couple of cultural myths that, they, that he could say pointed to him, which was kind of spooky. Um, and as a result, they, became, they, be, they came to Christ. When the Bari people that became Christians talked about their life in Christ, they talked about following God's trails because their life in the jungle was spent following these carefully laid out trails. And if you got off the trail, bad things would happen because there was stuff in the jungle that would kill you and eat you. And they understood that that was true as they were following God's trails. And so that's what we want to talk about today is this notion of walking the path and, and, and staying on track. Many of you know that I'm an Eagle Scout. I am an Eagle Scout, just like Travis is a Marine. He wasn't, not was a Marine, is a Marine. I am an Eagle Scout. Um, and one of the things that I was always particularly good at in scouting was using a map and compass. You can drop me off, you know, any piece of woods, and I do just fine. You leave me in the center of Boise, and I'm pretty much done for. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they also have not made a hospital too small for me to get lost in. I don't understand that. But then I finally figured it out. Um, Some of you know um, from Greek mythology the story of Daedalus and Icarus. They were in King Minos' labyrinth on the island of Crete, and the Minotaur was in the center, and, and Daedalus designed the labyrinth, and then they escaped. They made the wax wings, and Icarus flew too close to the sun, and his wings melted, you know the story. And Daedalus escaped. Well, having designed the labyrinth for King Minos, after he escaped, he went off and designed the first hospital. (laughs) You got that better than the first service. They're still thinking about it. So it turns out that in Christianity, we have a map and compass as well. And that's the word of God. Psalm 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 119, uh, 105 says that the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It lights our way. It helps us to see where we're going. In life, maps can become out of date. I have an atlas at home, a world atlas from 1932. That's when Dusty was in high school. Kay wasn't even born yet. Um, The inscription in the front of the book says that it was given as a Christmas present in 1933. It's kind of cool. Many, if not most, of the maps in this atlas are out of date. Many U.S. states aren't listed there. You know, 1930s, not every U.S. state was there. Europe has been, you know, rearranged, renamed. It's like, you know, all the the countries were thrown into a Yahtzee cup and poured back out. Um, Multiple times since the 1930s. And this is how a lot of people, including some Christians, view the Bible as this out-of-date map, this out-of-date guide for living. Yeah, that stuff was important back then, but, you know, we live in a modern world. We do things differently. We think about things differently. So, yeah, some of it's important, but, you know, don't bother me with all that other stuff. However, First Peter tells us that grass withers and flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Our map never expires. So today we're going to spend some time talking about the importance of reading the map 
of studying the Word of God, being able to read and understand the Bible, is critically important to walking the path, as we're talking about in this series. So we're going we're, we're to look at a number of different passages today, so get your Bible out and buckle up. And then we'll settle in one place and spend a few minutes there before we finish up. So we're going to start out in Colossians 3.16. Paul wrote letters to four churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, from which we learn the important truth that God eats popcorn. It's also how you remember the order of those books. It's kind of funny how that worked out. So Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. What's fascinating about this is when you compare this with Ephesians 5 where God talks, where Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit and what happens when you're filled with the Spirit, that you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and do these other things. And a lot of people have this tendency to view being filled with the Spirit as this one-time event that occurs over which we have you know, possibly no control. And yet, Paul is saying that having the Word dwell in you richly produces the same effects as being filled with the Spirit. In other words, as we have the Word inside of us, the Holy Spirit is able to use that to accomplish things in our lives. And being filled with the Spirit is intimately connected with the word dwelling in us. And it says, let the word dwell in you richly. Autumn Fowler can tell you, it's one thing to eat food, it's another thing to eat food richly. Or the Fowlers aren't here. What's the matter with that? Then let's flip over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15. We were just in the announcements talking about Awana. And those of you that are involved in Awana know this verse quite well. This is the Awana verse. It's what that ministry is based on. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Do your best. This, this phrase in the Greek means to be diligent, to make every effort. And in this context, talking about handling the word, it implies studying intently, not just casually reading. But then the word approved, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, is the Greek word dokimas, and it, it, it suggests having passed a test, having shown yourself to be, to be worthy in some way. Um, some of you know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but then towards the end of the Old Testament period, the Jews were, were carried away into exile to, to Babylon and Assyria and places like that. And then from there, they were scattered. History calls that the diaspora. They were scattered to different places. And many of the places they, they ended up in were predominantly Greek in their culture and in their language. And so many of these Jews adopted um, Greek culture, Greek language, uh, and they no longer were able to read Hebrew very well. And so in the intertestamental period, uh, a group of scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, translated the Old Testament into Greek. And today we call that the Septuagint. All of the old, almost all of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament 
are quoted from the Septuagint and not from the original Hebrew, which is why they look different. A lot of people will read the, 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 the quotations of the Old Testament and the New and then go back and read those passages and say, well, see, the Bible's wrong because it's not the right thing. Well, it is. It's just that, you know, you wrote something in, 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 in Spanish and then you translated it into Italian and then you translated it into English and you went back and compared it to the original Spanish. It doesn't, you know, it's saying the same thing, but it doesn't look the same. Or, you know, you went to school in Declo and so it just doesn't look right. Oh, I'm sorry. And so in the Septuagint, the word dokimas is used to refer to a coin that is genuine and not fake. A coin that has been, that has been approved, has been certified as being genuine. Now, you have to understand, coins didn't exist as we think of them today in, until about the, the, the 8th or 7th century B.C., so in the early Old Testament period, they didn't have coins. They talked about a shekel of silver. Well, a shekel is a unit of weight. And so you would carry around these little bits of silver, and you would carry around a little just basic balance scale and some weights, and you wanted to buy a piece of property, it's going to be this many shekels, and you'd weigh it out and you'd give it to them. That's why you know, the, the, the law is very, very specific when it talks about not using unfair scales, unfair balances, because that's how you paid people, because they, they didn't have coins. But it's talking about making sure that the currency that you're using is genuine and not fake. Correctly handling is taken from Paul's background in tent making, and it refers to, to cutting something straight. Many of you work with clothing, you make clothes, you repair clothes, and you know how important it is to cut something straight. If you don't cut it straight, you can't mend the, the clothing properly. In this context, it suggests handling something in a proper fashion to get the proper result. In other words, studying the word in order to gain the proper, correct understanding of it, not mishandling it just to make a point or support our own ideas about it. That's good. That's good. So thinking about it in this perspective, then how we might look at this verse might be something like this diligently study the word to show that you're not a fake Christian, but rather one who can correctly draw proper truth from it. Amen. See, so much of the time people like to talk about being a Christian, like Travis was saying, and then you start having, you know, they start getting into the Bible and talking about stuff, and it's obvious they have no idea what they're talking about. They're, they're, they're using it as a, as, a, as a club to beat somebody with. They're, they're, they've pulled something wildly out of context to support some crazy idea that they have. But our willingness to work hard to study the Bible shows the genuineness of our faith. Our willingness to work hard to study the Bible shows the genuineness of our faith. So, okay, so you've made this statement and maybe beat on us a little bit, but is there anything in Scripture that suggests that we should study the Bible, that's it's important to study the Bible? Well, yeah, of course. So Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith... It's impossible to please God. It doesn't say it's difficult. It doesn't say it's unlikely. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 4, or Romans 14, 23 says, Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So you can be doing the right thing all day long, but if you're doing it for the wrong reason, it's not coming from faith, 
than it's sin. And then Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ, the word about Christ. See, faith is central and critical to our life in Christ and it comes from the word. It comes from studying the word, from knowing the word. The last five years or so, we've heard multiple of these deconversion stories of these people that had been, you know, perhaps prominent leaders in different worship groups or different areas of the church, and they've walked away from the faith for a variety of reasons. Their faith was not in a deep understanding of the word. Their faith was in, you know, the lyrics of some shallow worship song or some other idea that they had come up with. And then when their faith was tested and it didn't line up with what they thought, rather than going to the Word to find out what was real, they just packed up and walked away. Faith is central to our life in Christ and it comes from the Word. So Romans 12 fly over to Italy real quick and visit Rome. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we can say a lot about not being conformed to the pattern of this, of this world, but in this world, we often function in transactional relationships with people. I'm nice to Matt, and he's nice to me. I go to McDonald's, I give them money, and they give me food. I'm nice to my wife, and she cooks for me and doesn't beat me up. And that's how we function with each other. It's really easy for us to slip into that mode of thinking with God. That's good. If I do these things for God, then God will do things for me. That's good. So, so recently in The Chosen, and anyone who's heard me or spent any time around me knows that our family are chosen super fans, so, oh well, you're going to hear about it. Many of you know in Hollywood there's a writer's strike going on. There's, a, there's an actor's strike going on, and the writer's strike didn't affect The Chosen that much because only one of the three writers is a member of the guild, but all the actors are in the Screen Actors Guild. So there was a strike. They called a strike, and it was like, well, we can't do anything. We're shut down. And so Dallas gets on social media and says, you guys need to pray. We need to figure out what's going on and see if we can get some kind of a, a, of a pass to go ahead and do this since we're an independent film an independent production. And so there was this one person on, on social media that, 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 that posts a message that was something like this. In our church, we fast and we pray and then miracles happen, so therefore we'll fast and pray and then this will happen. That is a transactional understanding of a relationship with God. If I do this, then God will do that. Tit for tat, quid pro quo. I scratch God's back and he'll scratch my back. Well, first of all, God doesn't have a back. And second of all, if the only reason we're praying and fasting is to get God to do something for us, is that what the Bible says to do? Now, the Bible tells us to pray and fast, 
But the point of praying and fasting is not to twist God's arm to get him to do stuff. Not to mention the fact to sit back and say, I want to pray and fast to get God to do X. You're putting yourself in the place of God and saying, this is what needs to happen, God. You need to do this. Well, I don't know who died and made you God, but it wasn't him. So when we are in this transactional mode of relating with God, we get everything all twisted around. Yes, we should be fasting and praying. We should be going to church. We should be worshiping. We should be doing these things. But not in a transactional relationship with God, in a transformational relationship with God. The point of praying and fasting is not to put quarters in the machine to get stuff from God. The point of praying and fasting is so that God can transform us. So not so that, that there's this hard thing and we want God to get us through it. It's there's this hard thing and we want God to use this in our life. Like Javi said several months ago, to be a student of our storm, not just get through it as quick as we can. So God doesn't want a transactional relationship with you. He doesn't want a better Don. He doesn't want a better Javi. He doesn't want a better Sarah. He wants Don and Javi and Sarah to be transformed. And, and Romans 12 Two says that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And our minds are renewed as we study the word. So let's get back over to 2 Timothy. And this is where we're going to camp out for the last few minutes that we have. 2 Timothy 3, and starting in verse 16. It says, All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it tells us, Paul tells Timothy several things here. First of all, he said that the Bible is God-breathed, is inspired. And then it says that it's useful. It says that it's useful for four things teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that that is for the purpose of equipping us for every good work. So we're going to look briefly at this notion of inspiration, and then we're going to focus on these four things and see what we can learn about why it's important to, to spend time in the Word. So first of all, let's talk about the inspiration of Scripture. This is a big topic. We're not going to do it justice in 30 seconds, but we'll, 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 dip our, we'll dip our baby toe in. So in, in studying Christ, it's important that we understand that Christ has a dual nature. He's fully God and he's fully man. He's fully man because he came to live a perfect life and die as a substitute for us to pay the penalty for our sin. He can only do that if he's, if he's, a, if he's a man, if he's a human if he's fully man, but at the same time, he's fully God. And that's the, the, the way he has the ability to live that perfect life and to, to be our substitute on the cross. And there's no question that he was fully God. He made that claim with, with certainty, without question. In, in the book of John alone, there are these seven I am statements where Jesus is claiming the holy name of God, I am, and then saying who he is. And the Pharisees understood that and tried to kill him. But this dual nature of Christ is important 
If he's not fully God, then he could not meet the righteous requirements of the law. And if he's not fully man, then he can't be our substitute and pay the penalty for our sin. In the same way, the Bible is a fully human book and a fully divine book. It's fully divine in that God inspired it. It contains God's truth. And it has eternal relevance. It was written thousands of years ago, and yet it's still true for us today. But it's also a fully human book because it was written by men in their language, their culture, their personal history. All influenced the writing. And so we can use this historical particularity to understand the message that God has for us. It was written at a certain time in a certain place by certain people from certain cultures. And so when we talk about this notion of the Bible being inspired, it, it kind of brings up several ideas in people's minds. So back in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this guy by the name of Ogmandino that wrote this book called The World's Greatest Salesman. My wife and I, when we were on staff with Crusade, we knew lots of people um, with a, a multi-level marketing outfit called Amway. Anyone remember Amway? I don't know, are they still around? I have no idea. I know they're out of Utah like most of those places are. But um, and this book was really popular with those guys. And so we ended up reading it at one point. And so Ogmandino presents this idea that Scripture is inspired, but it's inspired in the same way that Shakespeare's inspired, that Homer's inspired. And in the same way, Shakespeare and Homer and all these other things are just as important to us as Scripture is. And so there, there's, there's no eternal relevance here. It's just all historical particularity. There's all kinds of secular scholars who study Scripture. My, my, when my dad was in college, he took a class on the book of Job as literature. And, and even among secular scholars, the book of Job is considered one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written. But they, don't, they have no eternal relevance. There's no eternal significance for them. Then there's this view that, that some people try to talk about uh, of divine dictation. That the biblical authors were just God's scribes and he was giving them words and they were just writing them down. And so it's God's words. There's all this eternal relevance, but there's no historical particularity. Because there's no historical particularity, you're either left with just a series of commands to obey or you just simply have to rely on some sort of divine, mystical revelation to figure out what it means. And so, you know, I can say, well, this is what it means because God showed me. And Ferris can say, well, God showed me that it means this. And someone else can say, well, God showed me that it means this. And we have no way to decide if anyone's right. Maybe none of us are right. But then there's this idea of limited inspiration that, you know, the main doctrinal stuff is inspired, but, you know, some of the history is kind of sketchy. You know, we don't know that David was a real guy or not. Actually, we do, but, you know. Um, there's lots of this primitive scientific, you know, not really understanding how the universe works and stuff. So we can kind of dismiss all that as not being inspired. But, you know, the important stuff is. But, you know, if you can't trust all of it, then how do you know that you can trust any of it? And which parts, you know, all of a sudden you start cutting out parts that you don't like. 
And now you're left with just the easy stuff. And so you see this a lot in you know, certain, certain areas that, that you know, maybe lean in slightly different political directions than most of us do around here. But then there's the view that, that, that is considered the orthodox view in evangelical Christianity, which is verbal plenary inspiration. This view holds that God inspired every word of Scripture. Jesus said that every jot and tittle of the law will be upheld, will be fulfilled. But it also holds that the author's writing style, their personal history, their culture, etc., are preserved while still being without error. So Moses wrote the five books of Moses at a particular time and place in the history of Israel for a particular reason. And as we understand that, then all of a sudden, Genesis and the other books make sense. Paul had a particular history. He had a particular backstory. As we understand his backstory, and as we understand the people to whom he was writing, then all of a sudden the message he's telling them makes more sense. So these two facts about Scripture are what allow it to speak to us today and allow us to understand it. The fact that it's, that it's God's Word, that, 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 that it has this eternal relevance, means that it was important um, to, to, to the people of Israel in the Old Testament period, it was important in the New Testament period, and it's important to us today. And the fact that, that, that it was written at a particular time and place by specific people with specific cultures and ideas allows us to understand it. In his efforts to communicate with mankind, God used lots of different forms of literature, poetry, history, law, uh, prophecy, personal correspondence, and all of these different types of, of literature in the Bible are important. And, uh, and understanding that helps us to understand Scripture. And it's this human fingerprint that gives us the key to unlock what God is trying to say to us. So the Bible is inspired, it's God-breathed, but then it's also useful. And Paul says it's useful for four things. He says it's useful for teaching. Teaching brings clarity, not confusion. Teaching makes things simpler, not more complicated. And teaching is accessible to everyone, not just a few with special knowledge. Let me say that last part again. Teaching is accessible to everyone, not just a few with special knowledge. So you'll hear people sometimes stand up and they'll start talking about the word, and the more they talk, the more confused we get. And, and I'll tell you what's going on there is, is one of two things. Either A, teaching is not their spiritual gift, and that's okay. They should go find what their gift is and do that. You know, there are certain things that are not my spiritual gift, and I try to avoid them when I can. Um... Or they're not interpreting Scripture correctly. Because when you interpret it incorrectly, it leads to confusion. It makes things more complicated. And, and very often that's where people say, well, God told me. I know this is what it means. And so we claim this special knowledge instead of just simply doing the work of rolling up our sleeves to interpret Scripture. Because when we do that, it leads to clarity. It makes things simpler and and. and, and Scripture is accessible to everyone. Now, am I trying to say that there aren't passages of Scripture that are hard to understand? Of course not. The Bible itself says that. The end of Second Peter. You know, Peter, he was that redneck fisherman type. And after Philip Paul, 
he writes some stuff that's kind of hard to understand. And there's folks that kind of trip over it and bust themselves like they do the rest of Scripture. So the Bible tells us that there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand, but it also tells us to work hard to study so that we can figure it out. The Bible also says that the word is useful for rebuking. To rebuke is to critique, to reprimand, to admonish. It's, it's kind of how Nancy talks to George a lot of times. He's, 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 not, he's nodding his head. We're, we're on the right track here. See, oftentimes we're going along and we're doing our own thing and we need someone to point out that we're doing it wrong. It's just like the, the, the passage that Travis mentioned this morning. When you see a brother in sin, you need to point it out. That's your job. And a lot of times people fall back on, well, the Bible says to not point out the splinter in their eye because of the log in your eye. Well, that's not what it says. It says first take the log out of your eye and then help him get the splinter out of his eye. So the Bible tells us that we're supposed to help each other and point out when we're doing it wrong. And Scripture provides that. But here's the thing. Scripture provides that when we're neck deep in it. It doesn't provide that when we just dip our toe in, when we just casually glance at it. Scripture provides that rebuke when we submit ourselves to its teaching and allow it to, to dwell in us richly, as Paul told the Colossians. But the Bible, Paul also says that the word is useful for correcting. So rebuking tells us what we did wrong. Correcting gets us back on track. So how many people have been around folks that all they ever do is tell you you did it wrong? And you can't seem to do anything right, but they never tell you how to do it right. Anyone ever frustrated by that? Oh, nobody. Okay, well, I guess I'm living on an island by myself. Rebuking without correcting is a mess because we never know what we're supposed to do. We just know what we're not supposed to do. Yeah. It's like when, you know, it's, it's like the, the scared parent trying to teach their kid how to drive. Stop! Don't do that! Don't do that! And the kid just gets more frustrated, pulls over and walks away. We haven't experienced that in our family at all. <laughs> but it's more important to not just be told what we're doing wrong but also what we need to do to get back on track. But then it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we've been taught what we're supposed to do. We've been rebuked when we're doing it wrong. We've been corrected and got back on track. And now we're being trained in righteousness so that we can stay on the right path and keep going. Throughout Scripture, we're given insight into God's designs for our lives. We're given information about marriage and family, about caring for ourselves, physically, spiritually, mentally, uh, spending our money, being good workers, our relationships with authority. Every area of our lives, God has guidance for us in Scripture. We see examples of people doing things well, and we see examples of people making a mess of things. And both are offered to us as examples we can learn from. Many people today say they would do what God wants if only he would tell them. Well, guess what? He's told you. And, and, and if you think about the great pains to which he has gone to tell us, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't read Hebrew and Greek. I mean, Cynthia might a little. She's a library lady. They know those things. 
but I don't. And so God in his goodness led people to translate the Bible into other languages so that we can read it. And then you've got groups like, like, like Ethnos 365 and Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Jesus Film that are translating the Bible into multiple languages so that people can not just read it in a language that's sort of familiar to them, but they can read it in their heart language. You know, when you talk to people that, that speak more than one language, like Javi and Davina and other people in our church, and they'll tell you, yeah, there's this language that I work in every day, and that's fine, but if I really want to understand something, I read it in my heart language, the language I was born into, whether it's Spanish or Italian or Pig Latin or whatever. And that's how we understand something. In our house, we speak fluent Star Wars. Um, and so it's, it's this notion of God going to this huge effort to translate, to, to provide this word to us in, in a language that we can understand so he's told us quite plainly, and we need to read and study to be able to know. The Bible needs to be where we turn for answers to life's questions, both simple and difficult. So often we come to church, we read the Bible, and we go away, and we go about our lives and do what we do. And then we ignore God's teachings, and we get mad when things fall apart, and somehow or other it's God's fault. So why is God not providing this thing for me that everyone else seems to have? You know, I want, I want to have this relationship, so I go out and I do this relationship, but I'm not doing it the way God says to do it. It falls apart. Why is God doing this to me? Well, maybe God's not doing it to you. Maybe you're just not doing it the way God said to do it. And if we would trust God and do it the way he said to do it, then maybe things would work out better. We want, if we want God's blessings in our lives, we need to commit ourselves to God's will and his ways and follow him in every area of our lives. Not just the ones that we think are easy and we keep back this other stuff, but every area of our lives. There's not an area of our life that God does not have something to say about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And until we learn to trust place our faith in him, we'll never find that peace that we need in this life. This faith and trust can only come from knowing him through, this, through his word. If all we have is just our experience to guide us, then we get off, we, can, we walk the trail for a while, but we have no idea where we're going, but we're really excited to get there. And then we wander off the trail. And now what do we do? We don't have a map. We don't have a way to get back on the trail. And, and that's what happens with a lot of these deconversion stories is they've been kind of wandering around and not following the map, not following the word, and then they wander off trail and they're stuck and they don't know how to get back. And because they haven't surrounded themselves with people that study the word, they have no, no place to turn. When we get lost, we can't find our way till we consult the map. So what do we do? What do we need to do? We need to read the Bible. We need to read it regularly, we need to read it carefully, we need to read it deeply. We're wrapping up again, Matt. Okay. Um, we need to read it regularly, we need to read it carefully, and we need to read it deeply. Um, you know, there's all kinds of daily reading plans that you can get. You know, Bible Gateway online has got a half a dozen different daily reading plans. You can buy a little daily Bible in multiple translations that just, you just turn the page. 
And by the time you're done, you've read the whole Bible in a year. Um, you can, you, you, we need to get involved in a Bible study. How many people are involved in a Bible study? So a number of people are, more people need to be. Some of you know my, my wife and I are involved in Bible study fellowship. She leads an online Bible study with people from literally all over the world. And, and I've recently been asked to help lead a group training men that are leading studies. Pat's involved in Bible study fellowship. Um, get involved in some type of Bible study, an online study. There's an in-person Bible study fellowship meeting in Twin Falls. There's other groups that have online Bible studies. Um, Precept Ministries, Navigators, Campus Crusade, innumerable different ways you can get involved in reading and studying the Bible. Uh, you can go to the, the, a, a bookstore or online and find a book that will lead you through a study of a particular book of the Bible or a particular topic that you're interested in. Be intentional about learning how to study and interpret Scripture. Find someone to teach you how to study. Now, now, Keep in mind, find someone to teach you how to study the Bible. You need to make sure that you're finding someone that themselves knows how to study the Bible. It's kind of funny because, you know, if we want someone to come fix our roof, we don't just kind of wander up to the first person we meet on the street and say, hey, can you come fix our roof? But sometimes that's how we treat the Bible. We'll just kind of wander up to somebody and say, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Can you help me? We don't. You know, have they had any kind of training? Have they had any kind of experience in studying the Bible? Do they know how to do this? You need to find someone that knows how to do this and have them teach you. And then after you learn, go grab somebody and teach them. And as we do this, we'll begin to see that God does indeed have good things for us when we trust and follow him. That's what he gave us the word for, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we can be equipped to do the things that he wants us to do. That's it for today's teaching. Hey, here's an idea. Share today's message with a friend or family member. If you're listening from outside our fellowship, we'd love to meet you. Visit graceid.org and hit the contact form to get in touch. We'd also love for you to join us. You can even check us out on Facebook Live by searching Facebook for Grace Church Rupert ID. Learn more and plug in at graceid.org. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Grace Community Church.